Welcome to Well Grounded. This is Randy Conan from the Red River Farm Network. And this is Jason Menke from Acres and Shares. This podcast brings together experts from the world of agriculture and real estate. We'll talk about farmland values, industry trends, and the economy. In this edition of Well Grounded, our guest is Kent Tisi. Kent is a farm management analyst and currently serves as Senior Vice President and Chief Ag Loan Officer for Minstar Bank in Lake Crystal, Minnesota. In 2003, Kent retired from the University of Minnesota Extension Service after a 28-year career as an extension educator in agriculture. Kent has a master's and bachelor's degree in agriculture from the University of Minnesota. He writes a weekly column titled Focus on Ag that is distributed to several Midwest agricultural publications and websites, as well as to a large weekly email list. In addition, Kent is a frequent speaker on farm management topics and serves as the coordinator for the feature forums at FarmFest each year. Welcome, Kent. Well, great to be here today. So I, I start have to start by harassing you. It's it's nice to see that you retired from your extension career and then you took one of those cushy bank jobs. Yeah, well, cushy bank jobs. Yeah, that's what people say. Don't you know that you you come in at nine and leave at three? Ha uh-huh. <laughs> ha. You know, it's, uh, I tell you what. At, at least down in southern Minnesota here, it's been a little easier ride the last uh, twelve to eighteen months. Uh, uh, we were getting pretty nervous uh, with some of our, you know, uh, farmers with tight cash flows uh, back in that 2018-19 uh, period. But a uh, combination of uh, some government dollars coming in uh, with uh, the uh, tariffs in China and MFP payments and then the uh, coronavirus payments and then of course, uh, we were fortunate in 2020 down here to have pretty good yields. And again, this year, and with the prices we got, uh, it's been uh, a couple pretty profitable years the last couple of years for most farmers down through this part of the world. Yeah, I think I think these bank are including yourself, bankers have a little bit more uh, breathing room. Things are a little more comfortable. Uh, I started working at a bank in the spring of 2000, and I got plenty of uh, grief from from friends and whatnot about uh, about the banker life but uh, as you know uh, it's 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 that was the days gone by um, so and Randy um, tell us where you've been at the the last couple of days you gave up your radio gig for a couple of weeks yeah and I spent my summer vacation running a sugar beet harvester so I take two weeks off every year and go help my brother who was at the southern min area down in that in that uh, Renville Minnesota area very cool. So let's uh, let's start by talking. Can't uh, we do want to get into your focus on egg uh, newsletter? But uh, we're kind of into fall land sale season. So tell us what's going on down in your neck of the woods right now. Well, uh, for you know, we got at harvest pretty early this year. Of course, the whole season has been early down here in southern Minnesota. We we planted on time. Most of our corn was in the ground by. Uh, the end of April or first few days of May, um, growing season. I, I just got the data today from the Southern University of Minnesota Southern Research Center at Wasika, and they ended the year uh, when they got their first frost came on October 16th, and they were 470 growing degree units above normal, which is equivalent of getting an extra month of growing season. So that combination of planting early and then, of course, being on the dry side, they had 60% less rain than normal, and parts of our region down here had even less than half of their normal rainfall. And 
what really made our growing season was the timeliness of the rains. Uh, we were fortunate enough that even though we only had 50-60 percent of normal rainfall, uh, we had some very timely rains. And as a result, uh, you know, most of our corn yields were probably AP range from 10 percent under APH to 10 percent over. Few areas that got real dry, and we had some wind damage. Were a little lower. You got out into southwest Minnesota; uh, those yields started dropping off a little as well. And soybeans, I would say most farmers hit their APH yield. Uh, maybe a few again that had some uh, uh, where it got real dry, lighter soils drop lower. But a lot of farmers were 10 to 20 percent above their APH yield. So. It was really a phenomenal soybean year, a lot of 60 to 70 bushel, 70 plus bushel soybeans. So uh, from a yield standpoint, I think what most farmers would tell you, better than expected. You'd hear that term a lot if you ask farmers across uh, southern Minnesota about uh, how the year was this year, especially south central, southeast Minnesota, maybe southwest Minnesota, uh, that comment might drop off a little more. Sure. You had uh, you had talked earlier about uh, we're kind of bleeding equity as farmers here uh, prior to the pandemic in this last uh, growing season. We have a chance to kind of heal that up here now? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing at least, uh, and I think across the board, is that, uh, you know, farmers uh, got some extra cash out there, uh, both from the crop, last year's crop that they probably uh got higher prices than expected and a lot of farmers uh have taken advantage to price quite a bit of this year's crop and you know i think they uh, you know i guess uh and again uh putting my banker caution hat on here uh is to encourage farmers not to get too carried away sometimes you don't nobody likes to pay uh extra income tax to uncle sam but uh on the other hand uh it's a good time to upgrade machinery, and of course, farm machinery sales have been hot all over, if if you can even find it. And so, a lot of farmers have been putting money into that, putting some extra money into tile and upgrading other facilities, grain handling facilities. But uh, I guess I encourage farmers not to get too carried away. Keep your cash uh, working capital position strong. Uh, we saw several farmers kind of get in trouble coming out of that. Uh, 2012-13 era there, uh, all of a sudden when the prices kind of crashed pretty hard in 2014, and uh, really that kind of is where we started having issues all the way to the some of the folks being ca- strapped for cash in 2018-19 was the working capital for some operations got very tight and hard to deal with, and all of a sudden that transformed posed over into a cash flow issue where they were had some difficulties making payments. So again, I think just using some wise decisions, obviously when you have the extra cash, that's when you want to make some of those upgrades, but uh, just uh, do it wisely. Work with your farm business management advisors, work with your ag lenders, uh, come up with a, as well as your tax planners and get a good workable plan. Kent, about a month ago, I would have told you based off of the September sales that land values were probably up on the higher side, 15 to 20% from from values a year ago. Uh, from some of the October sales, and this isn't across the board, but uh, you know we've seen some, some circumstances in eastern North Dakota where 
you know, values have been 25, 30% above uh, expectations, what brokers were thinking. Um, what are you seeing for land sales down in, in your neck of the woods? It's kind of the same thing. Uh, land sales have been extremely hot here. Um, I know I just uh, I, uh, <clears throat> like to follow uh, the out of Iowa State, uh, the farmland value uh, survey out of their re- realtor land. Uh, Land Realtors Institute and uh, the figures they just came out with and this they go March to September and from uh, their March average to their September average uh, average land values were up 20.7 percent in north central Iowa which is right across the border from us and if you look at from two years ago they're up 43 percent which is just phenomenal uh, how much those land values have went up uh in the last year or two and and uh like you said there doesn't seem to be ending uh you know we've had many sales in this area uh well above ten thousand dollars an acre uh, uh some have actually been up twelve to thirteen thousand an acre and so uh in a year ago at this time we would have probably said that if you were getting hearing sales at uh, eight to eighty five hundred, maybe nine thousand an acre, so definitely very strong, strong demand uh, when they when they have sale. I remember when they had land sales back in uh, two thousand eighteen and nineteen. Sometimes they'd have a land sale and there'd be three or four people at the sale. They'd have it at uh, um, wherever they had the sale at a legion or. A, uh, in our area here, they have it. We have a rec center in town, and now uh, sometimes there's 25, 30 people. And what I've heard from some of the folks selling land is, uh, you know, land might uh, sale might be in that 10, 11, 12 thousand range. But what's amazing, it isn't just two people bidding on it. Up until uh, they get fairly fairly close to the end, there's five or six people bidding, and. It's a combination of farmers bidding that are looking for land uh, if it's in their area, but also investors. Uh, a lot of investors out there are a little concerned about the overall economy and looking at land as a little safer place maybe to put that. So we're seeing kind of a combination of land buyers, I think, out there that are kind of strengthening these prices. Kent, in addition to the Well-Grounded podcast, uh, twice a year I put together a newsletter that's mailed to absentee landowners. And kind of the goal of that newsletter, similar to the podcast, is just to inform people of what's going on with the land market and things that might impact the land market. And the carryover from um, each edition is uh, really a segment of of key uh, land market indicators. And, of course, net farm income is uh is a big one and uh you know it certainly seems to be a driving force right now so your your october 11th uh focus on egg column um dealt with uh, net farm income so can you share a little bit about that particular column because i think it's important for landowners to to find out a little bit more about about the current status of that and just the the bigger role yeah you know the net farm income um has has really been strong uh well the last couple years and of course the biggest difference we've seen in net farm income the 2020 uh numbers for net farm income were were largely driven by um uh the added government payments we had um the the government payments that year were uh 
um, I, the the most we've seen. I think they were top forty billion dollars that year. I got I I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I'll have them here in a minute. But anyway, that number, you know, uh, if you take that out of there, the government payments in two thousand twenty. It would have been a very similar year. Uh, yeah, the actual uh, the total net farm income in 2020 was 94 billion dollars, but 46 billion of that uh, came from uh, far- government payments. So you take that out, and it was actually a fairly low year from uh, as far as crop and livestock receipts. Now this year, the difference, well, uh, the latest projection is for 113 billion. But uh, of that, eighty-five billion uh, is coming from crop and livestock receipts, twenty-eight billion from government payments, and uh, you'd have to go back uh, to two thousand fourteen as the last time. Well, actually, before that, before two thousand thirteen, is the last time we exceeded that number. So we're on comparable net farm income levels right now to back in that twelve thirteen era when we again had high prices. Uh, we had some tighter grain stocks and so we're kind of back we kind of in in a very short period of time kind of reverted back uh to that era now uh what's going to be interesting is uh you know how we uh proceed out of that now obviously uh where where you guys are at uh, certainly the wheat situation and some of the uh small grains uh, the s- supplies are going to stay very tight just because of the drought but you know, you look at the corn and soybeans uh, after the last uh, world supply and demand report, it tends to kind of start showing uh, maybe we're going to start building stocks back up again. So uh, will we be able to maintain that? And, of course, the other thing is the cost of production. I'm sure we'll get to that is going up rapidly. But certainly 2021 was a... Uh, is going to end up for most farmers, except where you got really nicked hard by the drought, and and maybe in some cases, if you were on the wrong side of uh, inputs on livestock production, uh, going to end up being a very profitable year for a lot of the farm economy. Yep, ab- absolutely. There's a couple of points off of uh, <clears throat> a chart that you had put together. Uh, so this year's 113 billion uh, was the same number as just the net crop and livestock receipts um, from 2013. So basically without any government support, that's kind of the level we were at. We ended up at $124 billion. Uh, one of the things that I thought might be helpful, especially for those people who aren't tightly tied to agriculture, uh, when you look at uh, really if you take out 2019 through 2021, you know, really the government support on the federal level was anywhere from 9 to 16%. Uh, can you explain the, and, and so 2019 was 26%, this year was, was 25%. So just take a minute to explain why it doubled in, in 2020. Well, I'd, and I think that's a great point because I, I just saw that uh, one of the larger newspapers in the country in an urban area was saying how the farm subsidies were out of control and everything. Well, what what it didn't explain in in the article was the fact that the back in 2019 and 20 we had the market facilitation payments, and if we turn back again, that was because of the tariffs with China and uh, our trade with. Uh, 
China got uh, greatly cut back on crops and livestock and uh, ag products, and all of a sudden uh, uh, that really impacted our farm prices. And so those payments were put in. And then, of course, move ahead a year, March of 2020, we again saw the prices uh, collapse, especially the livestock prices, uh, due to the COVID-19 outbreak. And and again, so in, in what we had in 2019, we had market facilitation payments. Uh, we had the CFAP, uh, uh, COVID-19 payments, coronavirus payments in 20, plus some C- market facilitation payments. And then in 2021, we had kind of the wrap-up of those uh uh, CFAP payments, plus you throw in uh, farmers were eligible for some PPP payments. And then uh, certain areas, there were disaster payments in there as well, the WIP plus payments, um, especially down in our area, 2019. Uh, we had a lot of collections, and even some uh, uh, some of those weren't paid till 2020. So uh, that's what drove that up. But uh, Again, those most of those payments, except for the, uh, you know, the payments that come through the regular farm program and con- CRP programs and programs like that, those payments were one-time payments. They were market facilitation. They were disaster payments. They were the uh, cor- coronavirus CFAP payments. So my guess is, uh, like you said, if you look at most years, uh, we were kind of in that. Uh, you know, 11 to 15 percent range, and my guess is that's where we're going to go back to. We it, actually, if you look at every year from 2012 to 2018, uh, the total for the whole country was 11 to 13 billion. And my guess is, unless we again have some uh, payments, now of course there's some discussion of some more WIP plus payments here for disaster payments for last year and this year, which uh, could drive that number up a little bit again if those are implemented. The other thing that I find fascinating would be just how quickly these markets rebounded. You know, if you you look at where commodity prices were in, in March of 20 and, and where they're at today, I mean, th- those are the things I think when the government stepped in with uh, the CPAP and, and uh, you know, even... Even look at where China's at right now. Um, I think I read some information in the last couple of days that they're back to our number one customer, and I think the, looking at doubling to what thirty-one uh, billion worth of exports to them this year. So those are things that uh, you know just can't be predicted, and it's 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 been good for farmers uh, and and landowners because farmers have uh, have kind of filled the coffers back up a little bit and are a little little bit better ground. Yeah, I think it was surprising. I mean, obviously, we've known for a long time how important China is. Uh, You know, we've been saying for close to a decade that every third row of soybeans we raise, that we're raising to go to China. And when uh, all of a sudden the tariffs hit, uh, that hit pretty hard, hit the markets and uh, had a big impact. And, of course, at the same time in China, what was going on, was uh, African swine fever. And, you know, a lot of people don't uh, realize that not only is China one of the biggest consumers of pork in the world, they are the biggest, I think, but they also raise the most pigs. They raise way more pigs than the United States on an average year. But they had to depopulate quite very heavily in their swine herd due to African swine fever. And 
So what happened was uh, they had a need for pork, but we had the tariffs on about that time. And and then about the time the tariffs were changing and we kind of reached some resolutions on those trade issues, they started rebuilding their swine herd. So now they needed the soybeans back for the soybean meal. But all of a sudden now they didn't have enough corn either. And that that was probably the biggest surprise to me. I, I wasn't that surprised that the pork exports took off and the soybean exports, but it was amazing how much corn they imported from the United States that really uh, tightened our corn supply down. I mean, you go back to the beginning of 2020, and I think in January we were projected close to a 3 billion bushel corn carryover. And by the, this time a year ago, we were down to just over a billion. I mean, that's a big change when you're talking 2 billion bushels of corn in a, less than a 12-month period. So, uh, and, and most of that you can point right to China as being the biggest factor. And, of course, the other factor that happened with uh, domestically was when we had in 2020 uh, people stayed home because we were told to by – uh, you know, federal and state government, and people were scared of the coronavirus, the COVID-19, and and everything was shut down, travel, and so uh, the volume of fuel used went way down. Well, when that went down, the volume of ethanol went down, and the amount of ethanol needed. So all of a sudden, and uh, once we got past 2020, we saw. Toward the end of 2020 into 21, we started uh, getting the ethanol plants back up to full production. So not only were we exporting corn, we were using it for ethanol. And uh, you know, it, I think what's interesting right now is even though the uh, world supply and demand report that came out here the middle of October, um, you know, it really impacted the markets for a few days, but. It seems like now the markets have kind of went back strong. Our our basis levels really didn't change all that much down in southern Minnesota here uh, after that. They changed briefly for a few days, but uh, we continue to have some of the tightest basis levels on both corn and soybeans that we've seen in many years. And, and I thought maybe that would change after that last world supply and demand report, but it really hasn't. I think a lot of that is probably, too, just the, how short this crop really was last year. Right. I think last year's crop and the, that extra demand that was in there has really continued to play forward. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting now as we turn the corner here and go into 2022. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, planting intentions will be big, the South American crop. And, and what happens with usage are we able to maintain this usage both domestically and the export markets to uh, sustain the added bushels that we have kent is there uh, <clears throat> as we kind of get ready to wrap up uh, we we spent a lot of time talking about net farm income and then we we got into trade because it of course <laughs> affects net farm income um, any other any other comments you'd like to share with landowners about the, <coughs> the land market or anything potentially impacting it well, I, I think the big thing to look at, and, you know, we've been looking at those numbers, is as we look ahead to 2022 in corn and soybean production, uh, the input costs uh, are going to be a lot higher. Uh, we're looking at fertilizer costs for corn being about double what they were this year uh, going into next year. And 
you know, obviously uh, chemical costs going up, fuel costs, uh, seed costs uh, maybe up slightly, and then, of course, land rental rates in our area and most areas are as land costs have went up and farm profitability those land rental rates are going up along with that and so basically it looks like uh, a year what for 2021 we were looking at probably 375 to 4 dollars a bushel as a break even price at your AP at most a, typical APH yields to uh plant the crop, cover your overhead costs, and have a little bit of profit at the end, $50 an acre profit. And that's probably going to be close to a dollar a bushel higher as we look into next year. Uh, you're going to be between 450 and $5 a bushel probably as a break even. And, you know, and right now those prices are, are there. But, uh, again, it's a little more scary situation. Uh, same with soybeans uh, where we were probably looking at, uh, you know, but eight fifty to nine dollars a bushel. We're going to be looking at ten, around ten fifty a bushel probably as we go into next year as a break even. So, a little different situation I think as we go into next year, looking at tighter margins. And again, that kind of goes back to where we started: the importance of farmers to keep that working capital strong, uh, take advantage when you can lock things in, uh, like. Uh, those folks that locked in their fertilizer last spring, uh, that's looking like a very good decision right now where fertilizer prices are at. And so you just got to kind of pay attention to all the moving parts. Kent, please let people know how they can contact you if they want to sign up for your focus on, on egg uh, uh, column, um, or et cetera. Well, I do send that out uh, every Monday on different topics, some of the topics we talked about here and other things. Uh, they can shoot me an email at uh, kent.tc, K-E-N-T dot T-H-I-E-S-S-E at minstarbank.com. That's M-I-N-N-S-T-A-R-B-A-N-K.com. Or they can just go to the Minstar Bank website and they can access it there and sign up from there as well. Perfect. Thanks to Kent TC for being part of this conversation. The Well-Grounded Podcast is a presentation of Acres and Shares and the Red River Farm Network. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. It's also available at rrfn.com and acresandshares.com. Until next time, I'm Randy Conan. And I'm Jason Menke. Jason Menke.